0: Welcome to Diving Board, a show about artists, the art they create, and the wide range of social and cultural ideas they explore. I'm Bill Valerio, and I run the Woodmere Art Museum, where we tell the stories of Philadelphia's art and artists. On this episode, we're going to dive into the work of artist and poet Roland Ayers, and our latest exhibition of his work called Calligraphy of Dreams. Roland Ayers was born in 1932 and grew up in Philadelphia's Germantown neighborhood. From an early age, he knew that he wanted to be an artist, and he announced as much in his grade school yearbook. After high school, he served in the Army, stationed in Germany. On returning to Philadelphia in the late 1950s, he trained at the Philadelphia College of the Arts, which we know today as the University of the Arts. From there, he went on to become a master draftsman. He sometimes worked commercially, but he created works of art that were shown in Philadelphia's museums and art institutions, including at Woodmere, and in New York City at the Studio Museum of Harlem. He lived in Europe at multiple times and considered Amsterdam to be his second home. He spent most of his life in Philadelphia. Ayers also taught art and was a jazz lover as well as a poet writer, and an avid reader who managed the Friends of the Free Library bookstore. He passed away in 2014 and lived the final stretch of his life contending with Alzheimer's disease. Later in this episode, we're going to hear from T.K. Smith, our guest curator for the exhibition, about the significance of Roland Airs' art, its unique qualities, and the broad social, psychological, and spiritual themes that stand out. But first, we'll hear from Roland Eyre's wife, Sheila Whitelaw. She sat down with us at Woodmere to share some of her memories and reflections about the life of her late husband. Sheila came to the United States from London in 1960. She raised a family here in Philadelphia and worked as an administrator in several of our local beloved arts institutions, including a stretch at the Allens Lane Art Center where she and Roland met.
1: We hired him to do an evening course for adults, a design course, and he used to come into my office during the day because he liked to prep a lot early. He was very, very good at and very conscientious about getting everything just right for the students. And he would sit in my office and we would talk a lot. And, he, you know, I knew a lot about his background, even before we were together. And we were both divorced at that point. And that's how we met. We started dating. And at that point, I had moved from the main line to West Mount Airy to an an absolutely gorgeous Victorian apartment. I'll never forget. He came over to see the apartment, and he never left. Literally never left. He would go back to his place just to pick up clothes, but he just loved the old, beautiful buildings. The apartment that I lived in that we ended up living in together was, as you walked in, this beautiful wooden wall with a huge fireplace with two seats at the side, a window seat in the dining room. It just has a wonderful character. And he loved it, absolutely loved it. And he really flourished, and he didn't want to leave. (laughs) And he didn't.
0: (laughs) At another point in her career, Sheila became the executive director of the Friends of the Free Library. And because Roland was such a voracious reader, Sheila made the case for him to become the manager for the organization's bookstore.
1: He loved it. He used to get there, you know, 45 minutes early every day just to open the store, just to walk around, redo it, categorize everything. Because he was an avid reader, he just absolutely loved going to the store. He developed very, very lovely customers and friends. So he really flourished. The only problem was he put in so much time that sometimes it hinged on his creative ability to do his work. And he wanted desperately to write a book. That was his main thrust, was to write a book about his experiences in life. We got him a computer and we got him a printer. And he would stay up sometimes till 2, 3 in the morning just trying to get a book written. Then he would put it aside at times and say, you know, really should get back to my art. And I would actually encourage him to do that. Some of it was painful to write a book about your life and your experiences. And so, you know, he tried to juggle both. And he did a pretty good job of that, actually. But he got frustrated at times. And then the bookstore closed. And so he was able to stay home and do his work. He could write the book and he could also do his artwork. And we turned the second bedroom into a studio. You know, he could close himself off there for hours and days if he wanted to. So I think he was really happy doing both of those things. I was always blown away by his artwork. I just used to stand there just trying to look at it and trying to picture what is it? What does it mean? Everybody saw something different. He was unique in that regard. Very unique artist as far as I'm concerned. It just, there's nobody quite like it. But some of it was painful for him. There's no question about that. He was angry a lot of the time at the establishment, being a black man in Philadelphia, being a black man anywhere. It was hard for him. And he tried not to get too angry, but he was angry. I I can't honestly say that he wasn't angry. And I was thinking the other day, I wonder what he would feel now when he, he would be... I, I don't know if he, he would be so disgusted and so disgraced at what's going on everywhere. I shudder to think how what he would think at this moment in time with all the hatred that is going on. He traveled and lived in Europe for three years, on and off, I think, and he saw all kinds of different kinds of people that valued life in a different way that maybe he was looked at life. I'm assuming that. I'm assuming that his love for Amsterdam was something that was very relevant in his life. If we could have picked up and moved, that's where we would have probably moved. Because it's very open, he felt the people were really honest He made lifelong friends. Plus, he also met other Americans and other African-American artists while he was living in Europe, the same as when he lived in Greece because he loved Greece as well, but his heart was definitely in Amsterdam. And I think that opened him up. He sold a lot of pieces over there. They're in a couple of museums, one in Brussels, a couple in Amsterdam. He really started to feel... Like, maybe people appreciated his work a little bit more. Certainly, he was involved in the 60s and the drug era and uh, LSD and all of that kind of stuff. That also opened up his mind and his work. He did the most incredible work while he was living in Europe. But I think living in Europe just brought out all these wonderful assets of his. I really believe that. And many times he would tell me he'd go to the beach somewhere, I don't know, outside of Amsterdam, I'm not sure where, or maybe it was evening, could have been Greece, and he would start drawing. He would just take his pen and his canvas and he would start drawing on the beach, which is unbelievable to me. It's like he didn't weren't in a studio. He said, no, the world was my studio. So it was that kind of influence, I think, that, changed him into this, or he was always that kind of a person, into this world, looking at yourself, looking at what makes you tick, what makes you who you are, and trying to understand other people as well. ¶¶ He would go up to New York, and he would tell me that, you know, he used to go up to New York a lot, and he was very friendly with the people who ran the Studio Museum in Harlem. What he did talk about a lot was Gil Evans. He was very, very close to Gil and Anita Evans and all the musicians that surrounded him. (laughs) Uh, Miles Davis, I think, was sort of his idol, loved anything about Miles Davis I I actually think that Miles Davis had a piece of his work I think that Gil Evans either gave it to him or I'm sure he didn't sell it to him I'm sure he gave it to him he was always very happy to know that Miles had a piece of his work because he admired him so much And I guess he always was interested in jazz. He was phenomenal. He could hear two bars of a piece of music. He would know the album. He would know when it was made and who it was who was performing. It was unbelievable. We had a great record collection that, you know, we played all the time. And he would write. There was a, a magazine called Philly Talk. I think he wrote some jazz critics for them. I certainly had one of those articles, which... I was really shocked at, you know. So he was very much involved in jazz. He loved jazz. But he also liked classical music and world music, like, you know, uh, Middle East music. He loved Middle East music. So as far as music, it was so terribly rounded. It was all well-rounded. It was like there wasn't any music he didn't like except rap. He would have music on in his studio, absolutely, always, always. He wrote poetry. He would just sit down and write just a few words, and it would be a haiku, and he would show it to me. Where do you get that? It just came to me. Just It just came to me. I had to sit down and write it. And it's beautiful. I mean, I don't know how he started writing that. I don't know when he started writing it. But he has a lot of journals. I might have a dozen and a half journals. I never read them while he was alive ever. I just felt it was an imposition. It's not that he told me I couldn't. I just felt it was so personal because it goes back all the way back to the early 70s. But I started reading them recently. And in each of those journals were poetry that he just obviously sat down and wrote in between writing how he was feeling that day or, you know, the world events or how he needed to get back to exercising. He was very much into this exercise called Feldenkreis. I don't know if you've ever heard it. It's a stretching exercise. And he would be angry with himself because he wasn't doing it, you know. And then he'd get back to the exercise, and then maybe the next page was another haiku. (laughs) So how it came, it just happened. It just absolutely happened. I don't know... If he did that when he was in Europe, I'm not quite sure. But I know that the journals that I read, that I haven't finished any of them because it's a little painful. It's hard because also way back, he started to feel that he was losing touch and he was worried that he was going to lose his memory. That was quite a long time ago long before he actually showed any signs. But he was so into his own body, his own thoughts. He was a little paranoid about, you know, aches and pains and things like that. He never talked about memory. And so it was, it was kind of sad. I had to stop reading that particular journal that he started talking about that. It was It was hard.
0: As Sheila just described, Roland had started to document early signs of memory problems, which ultimately progressed to the point of him having Alzheimer's disease.
1: And yet, while all this was going on, he was still doing some drawings. And he did one particular one for me, which I treasure, The Tree of Life. And he he would sit and just do these lines, just methodically, night after night, it took a very, very long time. I watched him put that together, and he was watching TV at the time. (laughs) And I said, how do you know what you're doing? (laughs) He said, I know what I'm doing. I should never have questioned it, that's for sure. But it's an amazing piece. When every little part of the bottom of the tree and the trunk of the tree and the roots of the tree, he did every single stroke of that and I just sat there looking at him. I do not even know how he could do that and watch television at the same time, and he did that. That was an amazing feat. I I just, it's amazing. And then I didn't know he was going to give it to me. I, I, You know, I was just watching him do it, and then he gave it to me for my birthday, which blew me away. (laughs) What I see in his drawings are his soul and who he was, and his outlook on life, I think. It comes from his soul. It comes from his being. I really don't know how to describe it because you can't put it in a genre. You can't say it's this or it's that expression. You can't do that. Everybody sees something different in it. Some of the anger is there. There's no question about that. But some of it is also gentle and sweet, It's across the board. It's a very hard thing to... I can't put it in a box and say, this is Roland. I mean, I know his work when I see it, but I can't put it in a box. It's different for everybody. He loved doing faces of people, all kinds of people. I mean, where do you put that? It's just people from all over the world, faces. I wish I could explain it, but I can't. I mean, you know, you know Chagall, okay, which he adored. I mean, that was the one artist he would talk about a lot is Marc Chagall. He loved his work. But you know that. You know what kind of art that is. But he he didn't fit into that, I don't think. I just don't think so. That's why I can't put it in a box and say it's a certain kind of art. It's just not. Not to me, anyway. He kept going back to the pen and ink drawings that's where his heart was, I think. It's hard to say because then I've got some big pieces that are beautiful watercolors. They're just beautiful. So I don't think he had a favorite. I mean, if he did, I don't know what it would be other than the pen and ink is what I had more of, you know, after he passed and I went through things that I never even knew he had that were hidden in the cupboard somewhere. But they were mostly pen and ink drawings, maybe a couple of paintings, you know, gouache paintings, maybe, watercolors. I know I gave my daughter a beautiful watercolor. I don't know if there was a favorite. I can't honestly say that.
0: I have to agree with Sheila. Roland's work is utterly unique, and he experimented throughout his career. Woodmere's exhibition covers 30 years of his work from the late 1950s to the late 1980s. When you see it up close, it's an amazing experience. You can observe his meticulous draftsmanship and at the same time feel the constant dynamism of his ever-expanding imagination. It's an honor to showcase his work and share it with our community.
1: This was his favorite museum because they respected him, they respected his work, and they respected him as a human being. And so he always had very good feelings about Woodmere. I know that. When he was in the nursing home, they used to go to day trips to different places. You know, maybe one day they'd go to an ice cream parlor or wherever they would go. So they came here. They told me they were going to do this because they knew that he was an artist. And they brought him here. I didn't go with them. They brought him here with the other people. And when it was time to go, they literally had to drag him out of here. He just did not want to leave. That just broke my heart when I heard that. Yeah, when I went the next day, they told me that they really had a hard time pulling him out of here. He was just mesmerized by the art, and he didn't want to leave. He felt very much at home here. Probably thought it was his home at that point. I don't know, but yeah. You know, right up until almost the end, he was still doing his drawings, listening to jazz, I took all the CDs over there, and so he could listen to music. And he still knew. It's funny. It's just so, it's just so weird. Alzheimer's is a horrible thing.
0: And as for what Sheila hopes our Calligraphy of Dreams exhibition will convey, and what she thinks Roland might have thought.
1: He was a really decent human being in a day and age where that's hard to come by. He was a gentleman. He respected people, no matter who they were. I think that kind of shows in his work as well, the gentleness, the sweetness, and the honesty of it all. And so the people who knew him would agree with me on on that. The people who didn't know him, I think that they would discover, if they really look at the work, they would discover this very... Renaissance man is a good word, because I think that he was. He was very well-rounded. He was respectful. I think that shows in his work as well, as well as being somewhat angry as well. So I'm hoping that people will come away knowing that there was this sweet man in this world that lived right in this neighborhood, that loved this city, that loved life, and loved people loved people and I hope that that's what people come away with everybody has their own thoughts and feelings about it but his work is unusual his work is beautiful and his work speaks to a lot of people and the people who knew him loved him that's the bottom line here He also had this great way of speaking, had a beautiful speaking voice. I can sort of hear his voice now, and he would be really, really happy to know that his work is being appreciated, being maybe understood or not understood, that's okay too, but he wanted people to see his work to make them think about things, to make them think about life, to make them think about death, to make them think about love, to make them think about hate. He'd be very happy. I think he'd be very happy. And that it, in the right place at the right time.
0: And now we're going to turn to T.K. Smith, our guest curator for The Calligraphy of Dreams. T.K. is a curator, writer, and cultural historian. He's a first-year PhD student at the University of Delaware, and we sat down with him at his home in Philadelphia to talk about the show. T.K. brings perceptive insights into interpreting the art of Roland Ayers. And he believes that the work, which is historic, needs to be part of the conversation going on in American art today. It's as relevant as ever.
2: When I first got a good look at the work, what stood out to me the most was the erotic in the work, because it wasn't just sexual. It wasn't just pleasurable or tantalizing. A lot of it is grotesque, a lot of it is terrifying, you know, and I was really intrigued by the idea of the Black body portrayed in this way, not just sexualized, not just brutalized. This kind of, and this is going to sound corny, but this kind of dreamscape of all of the things that the Black body can be in the subconscious. These works are super detailed. They're super detailed to the point where they all kind of feel like multiple works in one. And the works, particularly the works made in the 60s, are full of these, I want to call them like clues or messages or symbols or hidden things that he's hiding, I think, for the right person. And I'm not always the right person. He was very interested in exploring what Germantown was in his childhood and what it became in his adulthood. He was very interested in jazz and music. And so there are all sorts of references to jazz musicians, their faces, you know, without names and even his face. You know, I went through and was going through seeing all of these musical references to Charlie Parker and Miles Davis and thinking, oh, R.A., Ra, that must be Sun Ra, you know? And it turns out it's him. It's the same R.A. that matches his business card and his commercial work. And he's hidden throughout a lot of these works. There are some self-portraits. And so in Astrological, I feel it's the only work in this show that is a full self-portrait of himself nude, which is interesting. Most of the nudes are women. And so that work really stood out to me because I was I'm sure that's him, you know? And I'm sure, you know, in exploring himself in the closest likeness to his actual self is really special. And it's a unique work, you know? It's one of those round, floating, detached works that is just beautiful. The skill it takes to draft drawings like these, to make prints like these, it's a lot of skill and a lot of talent. And that's why we're calling him a master draftsman. It has to be forefronted because just the amount of skill that goes into these, regardless of what they depict, is extremely impressive and noteworthy. And in terms of looking at the content, I think that looking at yourself, when we think about like spiritual and psychological exploration, looking at yourself isn't always comfortable. It's not always easy. And so I feel like, If I were to speak for Roland, he would say, that's exactly it. You're going to get aversion to things because people have aversions to parts of themselves. And he might've had aversions to parts of himself that he was putting in these. And you can't always control what comes out of your subconscious when you're opening yourself up to it. I feel like you have to look at the body and understand that the body can represent so many different things and to always assume that regardless of what the depiction of the body is, what gender the body is, what race the body is, all of it is a part of Roland himself. So it's all these different multiple forms of this man and his ideas and his feelings and his emotions and his fears manifesting in the faces of possibly people he's seen on the street, possibly folks he grew up with in his neighborhood, and the use of nudity. Nudity wasn't just nudity. It wasn't classical Greek showing the perfection of the body, and it wasn't nudity to tantalize or be salacious. It's nudity in the sense of vulnerability, and it's nudity in the sense of being exposed. I've had the pleasure of one of the things in this ephemera box is a dream journal, two years of him recording and analyzing his own dreams, which is real meta to get into when you're thinking about working with an artist and also thinking about working with an artist who has passed and thinking about how they knew that somebody was going to come behind them and do this kind of work there are so many dates and addresses and names and phone numbers and it just very specific detailed archival work that he was doing while he was alive that makes my work easier everything was analyzed and the language he even uses he has a framework where he talks about top dog manifestations in his dreams the aggressor and then underdogs what is being oppressed by the aggressive the ego the id like he was following symbols that would reoccur in his dream being in shopping centers and trees he was always seeing trees even ginkgo trees and i was reading about ginkgo trees and i look up and the ginkgo tree was blooming it was very kismet but the body, I think, to him, you know, you could go back and say, like, well, the sexual revolution, you could go back and say, like, black exploitation, and where the body became, specifically the sexualized black body, became something that was more upfront in visual culture. You could bring all that up, but I, I really think at the root of it, it's displaying the body as a vulnerable idea, a vulnerable manifestation of the rawness that he was trying to get at in himself. He existed as an artist, as an introspective Black man in a time where one Black art was not being shown in larger institutions, albeit smaller institutions. You know, I was reading in one of his journals that he had consistent shows in his own home where he tried to sell his work. He had to go into commercial work and struggled with that because making prints and making illustrations paid the bills, but it wasn't him expressing himself creatively. and. That is, I think, a reality not just for him, but for almost every artist of that time, specifically in a place like Philadelphia, where there are so many strong artists coming out of the 50s, 60s, and 70s that are just now getting their due. It's interesting to think because also there's two different concurring art worlds happening. There's a Black art world that you could be accepted or rejected from, and there's a larger white art world that you could be rejected or accepted from. And I think that because of the nature of his work, as vulnerable and as interesting and as weird as it was, it's not as legible to anyone, regardless of race or class. And I think that him going to Europe was in him experiencing that same thing we kind of hear Black artists who travel to Europe experience, which is the freedom of difference and the acceptance of whatever is the weirdness that comes with them in their practice. And the realities of racism are different and are shaped different and art is respected differently. The kind of argument that I'm hinging the show on is that we are seeing in this 30 year period, his transition into what he is most known for, the most expressive, intricate, detailed and confident productions of his practice in the 70s and 80s. We start in the tail end of the 1950s. He's fresh out of school, and he is finding his artistic voice through illustration, through drafting, and you see him change, and you can see the influences hit his work. You see things like the Yellow Submarine and these kind of beautiful, bubble-like, psychedelic-esque illustrations, the influences of music in that way. You know, and he loved everything from deep, deep jazz to things like the Beach Boys. He loved music, and so the illustrations and the way that the drawings moved across the canvas very much reflected that. What I think the show shows you is that his figures were shifting drastically. These long, lean figures and these bubbly, cartoony figures and these squat figures that are very much influenced by, like, coda pieces. You know, he's suddenly he's gone to West Africa. He's seeing West African art. And he's now it's influencing his work looks more folkloric and more old Brothers grim illustration, you know, those kind of old relief pages. And then by the end of the 60s, the 70s, he's developed his own very unique, very gorgeous figure that is long and lean and it in the lines that are kind of anatomical in the sense of sometimes the body is transparent. You can see rib cages, you can see musculature, sometimes you can see bone, but they're also centers of energy. He was very interested in Eastern spirituality, Buddhism, meditation. And so you can see the chakra lines, the chakra points, the moving of energy across the figure on the skin. And that is very unique to him, especially when thinking about a black body being rendered In the 60s, in the 70s, we're not seeing bodies rendered this way, beautiful and elegant and also sometimes grotesque bodies turning into other bodies, bodies forming into objects, things like this that speak to the dreamlike elements of the work and the faces too: full lipped figures, high cheekbone figures, Afro women, Afro men is absolutely beautiful to see. And when you take a look at the work, it feels very characteristic of the time, but also kind of Afrofuturistic because we've seen it, but we haven't seen it like this, if that makes sense. And I think, you know, he was an educator. I'm thinking of all of the art that has been produced in the wake of his work, in response to his work, in relation to his work, and how they render Black life, that kind of surrealist, magical, beautiful rendering of what feels more real than what actually is real. and you'll see some of everything. Some things will look like references to tarot cards. Some things will look like references to old master prints and illustrations. Some things will look like old album covers. You know, like he's pulling from all of these different places because he's influenced by all of these different places. He's seen a lot by the 70s and the 80s, and his craft only got stronger, the detail. And you know, in one of the journals, he talks about how this kind of philosophy of the relationship you have with the tree. So trees are significant throughout all of the work. You'll see trees throughout. For him, the ways that thoughts progressed and moved across the canvas or the page, he called them tree houses. They come from the written, they come out and spread. These kind of, what I would equate to like a thought bubble. He would call tree houses and you'll see the tree house motif throughout. (laughs) He says in one of his journals, you know, when was the last time you actually looked at a singular tree? And didn't allow social constructions or your previous ideas or your education to define what that tree was, but actually having an experience with that tree. And I think that's a very interesting way to look at his work. You're looking at a cacophony of imagery, of illustrations, having an experience with that image as he's placed, juxtaposed and contrasted images together as they flow and form into each other, having not expecting whatever you may expect, but actually having a singular experience with that work is how he referenced every tree he drew or every leaf he drew or every flower or shell or, you know, body. It's absolutely beautiful. And just so much skill. That's something I cannot... Without showing you the work, without holding it in your face, like show you how much skill, because it's freehand illustration. You know, some of these are just there's no drafting. This is before computers. You know, now a lot of illustrators, a lot of drawers, drafters will print out kind of a sketch or have a kind of digitized format ready. This man was sitting in front of blank paper and creating these beautifully constructed, geometric and free flowing and beautiful compositions out of his mind, and that is just. It's ridiculous to me. That's a, It's a crafts work as well. And I hope that when people come to see the show, they really appreciate how much skill is in every work. He was referencing books, referencing songs, referencing ideas, referencing Germantown, referencing Black history, referencing everything you can think of. He was pulling them into because his mind is a filter. It's a regurgitator of what is happening around him, the culture around him. He would sit and illustrate the doors he would see in Germantown before buildings were destroyed. To a certain extent, some of these works are archival. They're preserving an idea of Germantown, the architecture, the style, and the people, because there are people hidden throughout all of these works. For, you know, whoever needs to find them is what I imagine. I think that the show being at the Woodmere is very essential. Its position there will allow the people who will find more detail than I can find as, you know, a new Philadelphian they'll be able to see it and experience it for sure. His work has that mythical, magical, uncomfortable, painful, historical feeling. And in that suspension, it's hope and death and life and joy and pain and all of these different things. And you'll see figures floating, suspended, captured in like an awesome gaze. This kind of composition where It makes for a very beautiful and detached, dreamlike, subconscious exploration that I hope that the viewers have with the work as he was having making it. Their tree houses, their universes, their mandalas, because these are two-dimensional, right? None of these are sculptures, none of these are textile works. They're two-dimensional works, but they hold so much. The way that he manipulates perspective and scale it just opens up a window into a completely different world, a completely different reality. And I think that that's what he was trying to achieve, this kind of ocular distortion that takes you somewhere out of where you are into, you know, his mind. And that eye is probably the Ajna chakra, the the third eye. It shows up in a lot of these works, and it's the chakra, the eye, that opens to the, the most spiritual, introspective, high consciousness that you see through that eye. Um, it was on some of his business cards. It's in some of the works. And I think that's what he was trying to achieve, is a view into his higher consciousness, to access that, to be exposed to that, and to expose people to that, which is one, another one of the reasons why I feel like this work is super significant, is it's not just a Black history It's not just a reflection on black history or black emotion or black experience. It's a black person in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s when he was creating, looking into their subconscious to try to unpack all of these things. It's a step into what it means to be introspective of race and history and colonization and gender and sexuality and and eroticism and language and knowledge and music, it's a introspective, in-depth look into what all those things can become when internalized, when blended in the mind and brought back out. It's... Stunning to hear TK's description
0: of Roland Ayer's work and how he sees a universe of deeply infused layers that make up what is truly a seminal and intricate ensemble of art spending 30 years. And the exhibition's name appropriately speaks to those notions and originates from Roland, as TK will
2: explain. It comes from a poem that Roland wrote himself. And I should state this, that Roland considered himself just as much of a writer as he did an artist. There's tons of poems just tucked in there. And it seems like he just wrote what he felt like writing. You know, he doesn't have a particular style except for just like his drawings. They are very free. And so I can read the poem to you. It's very short, but it's called American Dream. And there within the archival material, there's a couple of versions of it. And so I pulled my favorite. So that's a selfish thing that I did. But I'm um, Black figures from the tree line, walking in weariness and fear, slow night tales, portions of dreams, refusing to digest. Eyes and faces which crystallize from plants and flowers, black figures form, form the calligraphy of dreams. And I thought that was a perfect title, but calligraphy of dreams speaks to the movement, the shifting, The no solid groundness of the work, everything is moving, everything is in motion, everything is animated and in relation to each other. It comes from his own words, which I love. And it also speaks to how he was manipulating, I think, and orchestrating his dreams and his ideas and his thoughts into something beautiful and thoughtful for us to contemplate. And so that's where the title comes from. And I also believe that this poem is a beautiful way of describing his work. Black figures floating above tree lines, portions of dreams, eyes and faces crystallizing from plants and flowers. And you'll see eyes and plants and flowers and arms coming from, you know, the sea and all of these animals forming into or making love with, or, you know, all of these different ways that everything is kind of a miasma of organic material that all swirls and exists together, becoming these new things in the mind. The way that he moves across paper isn't necessarily to find the edges. He's moving almost from the image out, and the paper just kind of contains all of this universe that he's creating for himself. And it would take him anywhere from a few weeks to a few years. The work for Sheila, The Tree of Life, took years to develop, bit by bit, piece by piece. And because he used this improvisation, this call-and-response method that you can pull from the blues, that you can pull from, from jazz... The work is not foreplanned. So you know that he is just responding to what's before him and what's in his mind. And that means that if you started a work one year, it probably looks nothing like you would have expected it to look the next year and nothing next to that the next year. It's a craft. It, it really is. And I think that's what made him fairly successful commercially and what makes him fairly successful as an artist. And to go back to him existing as a black artist in that time. It's a double-edged sword because in being ignored or forgotten or erased or however, whatever terminology you want to use, in existing in a time where you are making art in what could seem like a bubble, there's no need to compromise. This is not compromised work. You know, you could say that for his commercial work, but you're not going to see any of that in this show. So all of this work is what we assume he wanted to make, what he was doing, what he was thinking about, what he was dealing with in the ways that he wasn't looking to necessarily sell it, even though he was trying to sell his work, you know, he's he's got to eat. But it doesn't feel conforming in ways that more commercially successful artists might have to conform to the market in order to stay successful. That means that he didn't get a show like this until now, until after he's passed. The benefit of that for us is that it leaves us with this rich, rich body of work where we're not only seeing the best of his work, but the best of his work across time.
0: Special thanks to Sheila Whitelaw and TK Smith for taking the time to talk with us. The Calligraphy of Dreams runs through the rest of the summer until late October. We hope you'll come out to the museum and see it in person. And of course, for more about the show, its programs, and other upcoming events, head online to woodmereartmuseum.org and stay in touch with us on social media at woodmereart. And when you do visit Woodmere, make sure to take a small walk on our grounds behind the painting studio where you can explore La Cresta our new outdoor earth sculpture exhibition designed by Philadelphia artists Sid Carpenter and Steve Donegan. And for more about their process in creating La Cresta, check out our previous podcast episode. Diving Board is produced by Stephanie Marutis of Commander Media and mixed by Brad Linder. And I'm Bill Valerio. Thanks for joining us.